0: wow, all those things that happened in the debate were so meaningful for the election. All right, cool. We did it. All right, we're I don't know about, about you good? guys,
1: but my mind is made up now having watched the debates. <laughs>
2: yeah, well, I guess I would say it's a draw. You know, I mean, both people came. They debated and, you know, it was different. But, uh, you know, I think it ultimately at the end of uh, people really was learning experience. And, uh, you know, it was the, el- it was the election ultimately. <laughs>
3: guys, tonight was the night that Donald Trump became president. <laughs> so, <laughs> this this time Joe Biden was the super spreader. Um, oh, God. <laughs> um, my one prediction for tonight, which Will probably be, you know, within hours of this going out, this will be either proven or disproven. So it almost doesn't matter to say. But my one prediction for tonight is that we will get an exchange that is Trump saying. Biden has his like socialist puppeteers who if he's elected are going to like pack the court and Biden will triumphantly state no I'm going to anoint my committee my bipartisan committee so we can get everyone together Democrats Republicans
4: the ghost of Roy
3: Cohn or whatever to come to the table to decide whether or not they should issue a recommendation as to whether something should be considered about the judiciary. Yeah
1: like one of the members of the panel is just the ashes in an urn of Roy Cohn at a t at a table like Absolutely. Elijah, but it's just Roy yeah. Cone in a big brass urn with a bagel in front of it. Hey, you always gotta plate. save a
3: chair for Roy Cohn.
1: Yeah. You know you you like you have the ceremonial process in every um you know bipartisan summit where you have to leave a chair for Roy Cohn and then you you all turn and you open the door and you let Roy's spirit in. <laughs> and um, you continue the meeting and you leave the door open because, you know, Roy's a busy man and he's got to come and go.
3: Happy Halloween, everybody. <laughs> um, Indeed. <laughs>
1: Welcome to the Death Panel. We're back. If you'd like an extra episode every week, please consider becoming a patron, patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. Monday, his patron episode was fantastic, and we had Abby Cardis back and uh, she's joined by Justin Feldman, who uh, is also an epidemiologist, so it's a fantastic discussion, very spicy about yeah. the Great Barrington Declaration. No,
2: you and Phil did a great job. yeah mm-hmm. one of my favorite interviews that we've ever done, so really Love yeah him. become a patron anyway. yeah. and the yeah. one
1: before that is really good too. Mm-hmm. Uh, my interview with Jules Gleason, so mm-hmm. highly recommend
2: but um,
3: today.
1: Today, we're, we've got something slightly different. It's uh, it's just the panel today. Me, Beatrice, Artie, Phil, and Vince. Everybody's Remember us? here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Um, and this one's kind of a, a single topic in a way, which yeah. um, is something that we've been working on for a really long time, but has become even more newsworthy, I'd say, this week. Because on the 20th of October, the UK government announced that they were going to... Um, start preparations for a human challenge trial um for COVID 19 vaccines which would start in january Mm -hmm. now we've talked a little bit about human challenge trials in the past couple weeks or months um but
3: usually as a throwaway though yeah you know
1: because it's 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 like an incredibly complex issue that we've i think all had to do a lot of like study and research to come to the point where we feel like really comfortable and confident talking about it but we are now so mm-hmm. we're talking well, I'm about taking it
3: sort of a, a stance on on it because as you'll see we're not going to obviously like categorically dismiss challenge trials
2: as a thing it's but not so think, simple, or by contrast yeah categorically embrace them as a thing. <laughs> yes absolutely which is very important um, we're essentially but, uh, taking the who's line on
0: <laughs> surprising to us
3: take a yeah. look, <laughs> it's
2: in a book etc um
0: but yeah if I you were looking for, for if you were looking for certainty at the end of this episode you should probably just turn it off right now but oh there uh, oh there will be oh, certainty. certainty there's to, oh, yeah, there's
1: yeah well we,
2: there's uh ooh, well uh it's just, but, yeah. you know a nuance it's not certainty about the things you want unfortunately right right certainty right right, right. About. well let's just say
3: so we we will come to a certainty very quickly i think about challenge trials as suggested currently for mm-hmm. COVID-19 in particular mm-hmm. as of right now, as of this recording. Yeah. I will say though, so I mean this is one thing that I think has been, yeah, it's been on our radar for um, a while, partially I think since because March, like, yeah. it's been, it's operated I think as this sort of like policy curiosity for <laughs> a lot of people, like no really, I mean, you know, because the
1: latest trend in policy obsession for the well, spring, summer, <laughs> and fall. Well,
3: I mean since, you know, since, since at least uh, um well since this all began but really um in in like within like the united states for example i think popularly in a sustained fashion since early to mid march um either policy people or just sort of like pundit talking heads have been talking about vaccine approval process um how long that can take um you know obviously there's been the, like we we've, we've been all along saying you know this, these like approval processes for these things take time um there's been sort of also, though, this uh, like a, a couple of groups, but mostly this one group one day sooner, which we'll mm-hmm. get into um, <laughs> later. That's been really championing specifically the idea of doing human ch- human challenge trials um, for COVID-19 vaccines. Um, and that has, among other things, created it as a sort of favorite hobby horse of, uh, for instance, like one Matt Iglesias, our favorite policy <laughs> Man, strongman, save. our little Vox uh, liberal pundit straw man um who as recently as um i think last week tweeted for example actually in a very appropriate take considering what we talked about on monday (laughs) to release on monday tweeted quote wild that we and others have done this flirtation with herd immunity rather than human challenge trials to speed vaccine development so (laughs)
0: I guess to <laughs> yeah, we really wild, we really man. appreciate his cooperation in lampooning him. <laughs> yeah.
1: So basically, on the 20th of October, the UK government announced that they had this partnership where they were going to start the first of its kind um, human challenge trial for the COVID 19 vaccine. And essentially, how a human challenge trial works is that instead of the normal course of like a double blind study where you give one group the vaccine and one group a placebo and then you study them for anywhere from a year to four years to wait to see what happens when they naturally encounter the virus in the course of their lives, whether right. or not they have immunogenicity, whether it produces lasting or temporary immunity, whether that immunity is sterilizing and that it prevents you from getting the infection or whether the immunity just prevents you from getting disease. These are all topics that we've talked about a lot. So the idea of a challenge trial is that in theory, and in theory comes in huge, huge scare quotes, <laughs> yeah. in theory, theoretically, a challenge trial could speed up this process. Because instead of giving people the vaccine and the placebo and then sitting and waiting, and this is why people like Mataglacius love it, because the idea is sort of this accelerationist utopian idea where we can just use technology to move things forward. Right? The idea is that you intentionally expose people to the virus after giving them the vaccine to then sort of speed up the process of observation. Now, obviously, that creates some like huge ethical concerns, particularly for a virus like COVID-19, which, again, you know, there's no agreed upon good course of therapeutics to treat COVID-19. It's incredibly virulent. It's a dangerous and uncomfortable infection. It can cause morbidity and mortality in people regardless of age. Right. Mm -hmm. And so this is a this is a model that's been used in the past it has a history within like evidence-based medicine and it has been used it's not usually used on something that we don't have treatment for
2: right and that's really important it's been used the things that has been used on in the past like typhoid right cholera um things like that but at the time that it was used there were treatments right
1: um in the modern era yes in the um, in the past
2: not necessarily i would but. say
1: pre-1970 not necessarily um and mm. and it's it's interesting the way that human sh- human challenge trials have actually developed but like typically since the declaration of helsinki uh we have not done this for anything that does not have really excellent therapeutics so it's been like The common cold, like rhinovirus. It's been like neurovirus, which is the thing that you get on cruise ships that makes you shit your pants. Like it has not been, you know, a disease that puts people in a state of like total, you know, biological freefall like COVID 19 since an earlier era where we did not have such strict medical ethics like Nazi Germany, you know. (laughs) Right.
2: Some of the like earliest published human challenge trials in the 20th century were conducted in concentration camps and then, like, published in major (laughs) medical journals like The Lancet, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So as it stands, what we know about COVID and about long COVID is that there is, like, a pretty strong propensity for this disease to have lasting impacts on people regardless of age. Now, obviously, this is, like, a huge uh, hurdle that these human challenge trials would have to design around. And I think that this is sort of, like, the kernel of the issue in a lot of ways, which is how we will decide to interpret the boundaries of medical ethics in this situation. Because to me, the medical ethics guidelines are quite clear here. And COVID-19 at this time clearly does not qualify for a challenge trial model in humans. Um, However, that's not really been a huge part of the conversation and and we've seen a lot of organizations like one day sooner and media pundits pushing this idea that you know it is ethically okay and they're going to explain to you why
3: right Mm -hmm. i just want to i mean before we start talking about the ethics i do want to flag something that i think is just a little peculiar i don't know what um i don't know if this has any meaningful takeaways really um but i do think it's there's there's something kind of strange to me about the fact that i think the two countries um That where this, as far as I can tell, has had like sort of the most vociferous like public uh, campaigns to like advocate for, like advocacy campaigns advocating Mm -hmm. for doing human challenge trials for a COVID-19 vaccine. Um, Throughout the world, it does seem like the U.S. and the U.K. um, have like the most active agitation Mm -hmm. um, in that space. Partially, this is, yes, through like One Day Sooner being a sort of U.S.-U.K., how to put it like, you know, representatives who like lead one day sooner, which advocates for human challenge trials are based in both the U S and UK. And so they do a lot of media appearances in both. Um, but also it's a bit strange to me because if you think about, so, you know, again, back to the, back to the, the core idea of the human challenge trial, right. Is for instance, one situation in which you might want to do a human challenge trial, and I think in which it is done in the modern era now is like for uh new flu strains, for mm-hmm. example. So like I, when they're identified before they've become um either like epidemic or endemic or anything like that. When when they are identified uh before that, you'll you'll maybe do a human challenge trial because then you can say, okay, so we know that um we like we know that there's a there's a treatment process for the, like the flu or something, for example, um, we're going to give people the flu who may not come in, like who may not encounter it in the wild because, uh, you know, again, because it's not an epidemic or endemic yet. Right. Right. Um, because it's like still rare. Uh, Mm -hmm. so we're going to like maybe give them treatment and then we like expose them to it. And so where you would see this, is I get, what I'm what I'm getting around to is the US and the UK actually have such high prevalence of COVID-19, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That It actually seems weird, because if you do a phase three trial mm-hmm. of a COVID-19 vaccine in the US, people have a huge likelihood of coming into contact with the disease right. anyway. <laughs> right. So actually, the places I would think where you would see, where you'd be more likely, at least, to see, um, you know, a COVID 19 uh, vaccine human challenge trial being advocated for and being able to be a bit more, the case be made a little bit more ethically clear would be actually countries like China, which, you know, have been, have, Mm -hmm. there are reports for months that like Chinese labs are having hard times making sure that they can get their study design totally right for COVID-19 vaccines because case volume is so low in the country, actually. And that their, their, you know, their
1: vaccine is actually the one that so far in preliminary data is performing the best out right. of all of the, I think it's 120 some odd vaccines that are in, in testing right now.
3: Right. But so if you're if the idea of a human challenge trial is to speed things up, right? Because mm-hmm. you're like, well, mm-hmm. we could give this to people and then we don't know if we just put them in a regular phase three st- Study like they're getting the vaccine candidate, uh, and then they go out into the world, and it's like up to uh, you know chance and a bunch of other factors or whatever to see whether they're even come into contact with the disease at all, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Then, if that's the main thing that saves time, well.
1: Well, when you have a 23% positivity rate in the state of Wisconsin, um, it seems right. like actually spending all of the time to design what could be an ethically absolutely cruel and inhum- inhumane um, study is actually a waste of time, frankly.
3: Yeah, you could just set up a study well, in Wisconsin.
2: Yeah, and, I, and actually that's that's important because the ethical framework for evaluating this begins – like there are a bunch of different criteria you would want to use – but you begin with, is this scientifically justified? Like, are we likely to find something out that's right. useful and valuable? And do the benefits of making this discovery outweigh uh, the risks that it would impose? And, and the way that I've seen this framed, because there are public opinion studies that now sort of ask, you know, how people generally feel about this. And the way that it's sort of framed as or the trade-off is... Um, it's both time. So, you know, we return to normal life sooner. That is one of the, uh, be, you know, pur- purported benefits to society right. uh, of the uh, challenge trial. And then, second, that we reduce on the whole the number of lives lost relative to um, the baseline, right? So, that's sort of like mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the ethical analysis, often one thing that, uh, I think proponents of challenge trials often make is that like uh, how ethical is the status quo, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Relative to what we would discover here. But I think, I mean, the the challenge I think for me is in thinking about exactly what you said, which is, um, is it really the, like all of these ethical judgments depend on some level of certainty about whether or not it's really the case that you would see a massive ramp up uh, mm-hmm. relative to the baseline <laughs> and that like, you, you know, that you wouldn't be able to glean information as quickly or as efficiently, um, as you would sort of in the real world. And as you said, like, there are plenty of places in the United States where, um, you know, you don't have to wait that long before people come in contact with the virus. It's <laughs> right. Exactly right. Yeah. No, right? totally. a great Yeah. A of
0: mine just got it. So yeah. No, mm-hmm. no. That are in fact, basically their own just naturally occurring challenge trials. Yeah.
1: Great. I mean, we
0: were used to talking about states as laboratories of uh, something. (laughs) God damn it. Was
3: it, was it democracy or was it, uh, something else? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um,
1: You know, I mean, it, it it was more of a ambiguous, you know, question. I think when I first started looking into this issue and discussing it with my physicians, like in late March, you started to see some preprints pop up that were like, oh, you know, we should consider a challenge trial model because in the United States, we only have like a hotspot in New York and a hotspot in Washington state, right? And those are going to be waning. So if we don't know where it's going to go next, the way to do it, right? Because there was this assumption that we
4: were, <laughs> we were going <laughs> to...
3: I'm sorry. <laughs> there was... <laughs> Real knee slapper, that one. Go on, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you... Do you think...
1: (laughs) There... um, Sorry. Because there was an assumption that we were going to keep the virus under control. And (laughs) and therefore, it would be difficult to plan and anticipate where the next hotspot would be. Right? But if you... But that was March, and and now in October, I think that there are 39 states that are considered to be hotspots, so it's less of an issue. And the UK, which is the one moving forward with this this challenge trial idea, um, they also have case numbers exploding. So it's a little bit more cut and dry now than it was in March when we first started saying, like, okay, what the, what the fuck does a challenge trial model in the context of COVID mean, right? right. Mm-hmm. And that was back when, like, there were some news hits on some preprint papers with people being like, OK, we're going to do a challenge trial. And then you would see a month later as that started going into peer review, papers responding, being like, whoa, 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 wait, wait,
4: hold up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> hold on a second. Challenge trials are really complex and we don't know anything about COVID. I don't know if we can do this. And... It was sort of about the same time where in the media and in the narrative of like politicians, you were seeing governments start to acknowledge that, like, you know, simply allocating enough ventilators was not going to cut it. That, you know, we were potentially looking at a situation where we would be living with this virus and the global pandemic until such date as vaccine rolls out. Right. And Mm. so this sort of became a type of magical thinking that was being built as a way to accelerate the testing process, right? which
3: also just point out um, just as a brief aside too. Um, in addition, specifically the uh, one in the UK um, and really any any that you would do, any challenge trial that you would do for COVID-19 involves an additional first step, which will also take some degree of time, which is actually figuring out something which is a big unknown mm-hmm. right now. Which is exactly how much, like, dosage of the virus, like, how much viral load you need Mm -hmm. to get Mm -hmm. an Mm -hmm. infection. Right. Um, So, like, there would be a whole, essentially, like, phase before that Mm -hmm. where you would be figuring that out, and only after that would you start... So, like, yeah, I'm, basically what I'm saying is oh, and you considering don't forget the that we phase already before that phase, right. which
1: would be deciding which virus to infect, like, right. which uh, sterilized. Strain va- of, like, right. you have to make a standardized version of the virus that and all of the it, trials yeah. are going to agree to infect people. Right. With, so right.
3: considering that we already have several vaccine candidates in phase three, it's mm-hmm. kind of weird that like to me, it does seem suspect that it that this campaign has been so sustained. Yeah. Right. I mean, I get people talking about this in April. I don't think that we felt like we needed to talk about it really mm-hmm. over the summer. There were a lot of other pressing things like the downfall of society, <laughs> <and> <laughs> like the economic collapse experienced by many people, but like yeah, it, it's it, it, it remains questionable to me what why exactly this continues to be such a major hobby horse when we do have phase 3 trials now and the mm-hmm. idea was to get to
2: them faster and through them I mean, faster. I have a hypothesis about that. And this is really <laughs> Just caveat, like very speculative, right? Which is that, I mean, one way of understanding this is sort of to to look inside the world of researchers, the scientific world that's generating um, these ideas, and to you know to think about this as a as a, an attempt to solve a uh, a problem in the process of vaccine um, development. Uh, but for a variety of reasons, uh, I think. it's, there's some inconsistencies if you just try to look at it in that sort of hermetically sealed way. Um, And I think it's, it's hard for me, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a virologist. I, you know, don't uh, that, you know, I don't consume research on vaccines on a, on a regular basis. But what I can see is that uh, we've created a situation uh, politically where it's, like our our management of the the pandemic as a whole, certainly in the United States and I think also in other countries, has been so um deeply deeply uh uh flawed uh, right. and and murderous in a lot of for ways sure. um mm-hmm. that we've created a sort of marketplace for ideas <laughs> about how we can very quickly uh get out of the world that we Created, Right. And, you know, again, I think that there are probably, as we say, like there are conditions under which challenge trials can be ethical. But the problem for me is that these decisions about what the appropriate level of risk is are not really being had. Um, and I don't think you can expect them to be had merely in the context of research ethics committees at universities or, or hospital systems uh, or regulatory agencies, the conversation and the way that the issue gets um, kind of plucked you know into like popular understanding happens in a very political process in which while we say that we're using the framework for evaluating risk and reward that comes from the WHO, let's say. right those mm-hmm. words are just natural language. And they're very like the, the concept of like risk and benefit gets very easily is very easily to manipulate, um, I think, and and to like at some point dispense with the idea that there actually is uh, a real difference uh, in in degree or or value. So like there are all of these frameworks that I think are very helpful for thinking about whether or not these things uh, how how to do these sorts of things. But if you like, I think you're really really naive to think that there isn't some sort of uh, appropriation and and like what's the motivation. Mm-hmm. I think people want this to be over soon, but yeah. there's also not a lot of political will to make it bearable for the time <laughs> that it's with us. Right. right? Uh, and so yeah. there is political will for uh, something that will generate some, Means of of hope for the future, right?
1: No, that's such a good point, for Phil. I mean, like, challenge uh, human challenge models have been used to great advantage to speed up vaccine development. I mean, the Ebola vaccine right. and the other SARS vaccine are good examples, right? Like the, you know, typically though, you know, we don't we don't test these human challenge trials on very large populations, right? And that is mm-hmm. inherently. A major downside to pursuing this strategy and I think that's the thing that's being intentionally left off the table
3: well or when it's when that's mentioned actually its proponents say that that is a uh, bonus actually right. that less people have to be engaged in the trial that it, the trial itself needs less participants basically right is which is this,
1: it's a kind of straw man argument there because less participants also means less reliable data
4: yeah. And mm-hmm.
1: less participants and the fact that this is a much, much riskier trial than a phase three trial, which is sort of the chat aesthetics here. You have 30,000, <laughs> 30,000 strong vaccine trial with a diverse <laughs> pool of participants. Right. Mm-hmm. Versus, you know, the uh, in cell challenge trial which is like at most like maybe a thousand people they're gonna start with 500 they'll infect one person at a time i've seen people say you know what, what we'll do is we'll do one patient we'll wait six weeks we'll do the next patient excuse me? Yeah.
3: That's how science works. Yeah. Totally.
1: Cool. Yeah. Like, so instead of doing sort of a, a ethical study, we're going to instead like assembly line, just sort of put people up in like a, a meat processing factory way of going through this. Trial no, no,
3: no, no, it's, it's, it's more like, you know, when science was good in the 18th <laughs> century, when Edward Jenner was like inf- intentionally <laughs> infecting his gardener's child with the disease to see if his <laughs> vaccine works. Yeah. Like that was great. Um, yeah. I mean,
1: so challenge model trials can offer huge potential advantage to speed up vaccine development, but only when they've been appropriately designed, when they're appropriately controlled and regulated. And I I think we just like quick disclaimer before we get into the bulk of this conversation like we absolutely do not want you coming away from this conversation with like all vaccines are are bad and the result of like
3: we're all human challenge trials trials right that like all
1: vaccines are the result of like evil ethical slippages like this or that you know that you know human challenge trials are not all bad but human challenge trials for covid are currently all bad (laughs) <laughs> that are being proposed. And on top of that, even if there's a disease, if there's a human challenge trial that results in a vaccine that goes to market, that does not mean that the vaccine is not going to work. What the question we have is at what cost did we come to that conclusion to bring the the vaccine to
2: market? In, and as, as measured in lives. And right. I, yeah, yeah. And I think that my sort of just knee jerk add on to that is be wary when the demand and the conversation is being had in two arenas at the same time and there's an attempt to use this this sort of to appropriate scientific language uh in a in a public way i mean just be very careful with the language Mm -hmm. that people are using uh because there are a lot of slippages uh when Mm -hmm. scientific language gets used in in sort of the public square totally
3: Mm -hmm. as uh again shout out to the episode that you guys recorded yeah. with uh, Abby Cardis and Justin Feldman.
1: Patreon.com but, <laughs> slash death pod. Yeah,
3: but um, yeah, I think to sort of continue this or to get into sort of the meat of it it's and like why we're saying some of these things, I think it would be good to address some of the specific concerns um in challenge trial design that uh have been floated uh by other people in sort of response to this like public like I was going to say get out the vote get out like <laughs> get get out the advocacy for for challenge trials get
1: out the variolation.
3: right um but so yeah to, to bad do this joke for my
1: clinicians out
3: there <laughs> uh to do this i'm going to draw um kind of heavily hear from this uh, great paper that was in Sage Research Ethics um, by Lisa Tambrino and Dirk Lanzarath, which I think we'll probably put in the show notes. Mm-hmm. But um, the to, to sort of boil this down, there are three things that um, you want to be concerned about, uh, one of which we've talked about extensively um, when you talk about like the bioethics of uh, designing a human challenge trial. Um, one is this idea of minimizing risk, which I think we've talked about a lot, though, I would add to that, that minimizing risk also includes like it's minimizing the risk to the patient. One of the things that, um, you know, the UK people say that they'll do is like give remdesivir uh at at the onset of symptoms which latest clinical research shows like
1: barely statistically significant
3: well (laughs) statistically insignificant when it comes to mortality so death like it doesn't keep you from dying but for for people who are going to recover I guess uh, it like can sometimes like shrink the recovery time well it can anyway. shorten the
1: hospital stay but if a patient I'll from a challenge trial has ended up in the icu and they're getting remdesivir to shorten their stay then the trial has failed and it's right. designed so already. also
3: and then that gets to kind of the second point minimizing risk also includes like it's not just risk to participant it's risk to like the community that they're in it's risk to the people who are conducting the trial so is the trial entirely inpatient is it done in some sort of isolation that you know these are important design considerations um then anyway, we've talked about minimizing risks a lot. The next two I think are important to talk about. One is kind of simple, but the the but another one is actually I think a really important thing where a lot of this type of type of exact like the exact type of slippage that Phil's talking about happens, um, which is appropriate informed consent mm-hmm. um, and how you mm-hmm. make sure that you're getting appropriate informed consent from trial participants. Um, and I want to get I want to get more into that. But the third one is um, Avoiding monetary inducements to Participate <laughs> which again Pretty straightforward in the middle of a time When you have a lot of people in extreme economic Distress um, yeah. who are Like going hungry who are losing their homes uh, You know you maybe Want to be especially concerned about The ethical quandaries there but mm-hmm. <laughs> um, That that aside I think it, it would be important to talk about um, What informed consent means In this situation because There's I think like the one day sooner People for example say certain things about what constitutes informed consent for a COVID-19 vaccine uh, human challenge trial. And then there's like, a lot of people who issue comment papers explicitly about that part saying, whoa, 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 whoa. you yeah. know, um, and I think that this debate is actually really interesting.
1: Yeah, there's big like standing in front of a semi truck holding up your arms, begging for it to stop energy in a lot of these <laughs> papers, which is specifically addressed in the, the informed responses. You yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because so informed consent. So informed consent is basically the idea that the patient is agreeing to participate in the study. In a scenario in which they are, number one, not coerced financially, right? Right. Um, number two, that they are adequately educated as to the potential risks to morbidity and mortality from <laughs> participating. That three, they have been deemed sufficiently healthy and of sound mind because if someone like me tried to uh participate in this being chronically ill i would be deemed unable to make that consent because i couldn't comprehend how the trial would interact with my own you know physiognomy and they would assume that the the results would be bunk so you know the fourth thing is is the person intellectually capable of consenting (laughs) and that's kind of like
3: you, as you can imagine, has a, a
0: broad history has of a paternalism a there. A yeah. long history I, I was going to say, yeah, a, ri- a rich history. <laughs>
1: and, of course, like that, those parameters, um, you might be like, wow, these are really open to interpretation. Like, right. this seems like a little <laughs> bit of a danger zone right here. If we're
3: in the 1950s, that checkbox might look like, is the participant a woman?
1: Right. <laughs> but, I mean, the real issue is that, okay, In the like specifically in the current context, I am not talking about human challenge trials as a whole. Could you could any person who isn't a billionaire actually give informed consent to participate in a study like this if the study and challenge trial are successful and the vaccine is efficacious wouldn't that represent some in some capacity inherent financial coercion if there is not like state support for staying home right like we're seeing this happen constantly with the uh immunity passports right and a lot of these people who are like challenged on this idea of like well because there's no like you know fiscal support for people right now um inherently like There will be financial coercion. People who are desperate to not be evicted will be incentivized to participate in these trials, potentially against the better judgment of like their own health. Right. Because it will, in theory, lead to them working. And a lot of the people who have been challenged with these ideas say, well, you know, we'll do an online class. (laughs) They'll sit through a seminar and we'll make sure to educate them on the um the risks
0: no because yeah that yeah every time every time i've sat through a 90 minute online seminar i definitely learned anything from <laughs> <it>. <laughs> well i mean and that's I, I think that's that's really important
3: to to bring that in cuz actually one of the people who is the most like one of let's say the public faces of you know covid-19 human challenge trials is this guy near iol who works with one day sooner um near is a is a bioethicist in the philosophy department in Rutgers University. Um,
1: Again, not a research clinician.
3: Right. Um, And, you know, when when asked about it, yes, he has explicitly said uh, like, well, they they asked, like, how would you make sure that you get appropriate informed consent? And he has explicitly said, like, well, through we could do it a lot of ways, for instance, through a well-tailored online course, (laughs) which, yeah, I mean, you've all as Vince is saying, we, we've all hit next through plenty of those and, you know, yeah. <laughs> the, the right multiple choice answers, whatever. But basically, um, like digging, digging a little bit into some of the other statements, like, for instance, stuff that um, Nir Ayal has said in uh, in co-authored papers, for example, um, in uh, like in academic uh, outlets gives up a little bit more of what sort of the actual position is here because since people have like sounded the alarm about this and said, um, you know, things which I tend to agree with, which are, you know, exactly as, uh, B is saying like, well, we literally actually don't know all of the potential risks as we have seen. The novel coronavirus is extremely like has, it has an extremely, um, high amount of, of like you know strange long-term and other effects um and like you know beyond just basic mortality beyond like whether or not you will die or live from it there there are like you know we, we don't know how long certain effects that people have experienced from have COVID-19 like will last there are are too many indeterminacies basically right right? if we don't know if (laughs) someone
1: can get a decade of brain fog as a result of having an infection can we really ask someone to give informed consent
3: right exactly Mm -hmm. so that's what people say is like so given those circumstances how could you possibly actually give like ask for informed consent because you're you can't necessarily even point to what the person is consenting to Right, um, And so in a paper, actually, in, uh, I think, June, Nir Eyal and some of his uh, colleagues, uh, one of which at least is also on the advisory board for One Day Sooner, um, wrote uh, the following in response. Um, so they set up a couple they like pull a couple of quotes for, of uh, different scientists kind of saying, you know like basically making that argument they they mention for example uh the new york times and a couple of aids uh advocacy organizations uh saying that uh because it is not the case quote that pathogenesis and risks are reasonably well characterized uh ensuring in appropriate informed consent for a challenge trial may be impossible their response to this is and i quote however high uncertainty among experts is perfectly compatible with valid informed consent. Excuse me? Consent <laughs> can remain valid when researchers' understanding is highly incomplete or even completely wrong.
1: I'm
2: not un- sure unquote. that I understand that. <sighs> yeah. I really want to try to... Un- I, I actually genuinely want to understand that. So how can... Okay, so like... So let's that you think can about give consent. consent. <laughs> okay, let, let's think about consent in a much simpler... Yeah context, right? Do you consent to me recording this conversation? Okay? <laughs> right. So, I uh do you consent to me recording this conversation? Uh you answer yes. I don't actually know though whether or not the conversation is being recorded. Right. Now, I guess you could say that that makes sense. It's like, do you consent to this conversation being recorded um if if I choose to record it. Right? Right? It mm-hmm. maybe in that case uh it wouldn't matter as right. you know, uh to to an extent, uh, whether or not I knew whether or not it was being recorded or not. However, depending on what part of the conversation we're in, you might really want to know whether or not I was recording now or later. Right. You (laughs) might consent now, but in a few
3: hours, let's call this the Rudy Giuliani paradox.
2: (laughs) Exactly. So it's like, I, even in a very simple example, I'm not sure that that makes any sense.
3: Right. Like
2: it's not sure. It's not clear to me that that that, that is consent in any identifiable meaning of that term.
3: Yeah. And I mean, you're, dead on this again this uh, this like it's the tar- the same like slippage and sort of like well you know when you think about it relatively um thing that mm-hmm. we've been sort of talking about because if they like when you continue to read their argument it starts it literally it starts to become like the rumsfeld unknown knowns thing mm-hmm. um yeah just
1: for the For the record should not be the basis for study design
3: no <laughs> absolutely no. Are yeah
1: are not the basis for a clinical trial study design no just saying yeah
3: no no snowflakes uh, can rain out to become clinical trials anyway <laughs> um, they're going to they're saying this uh, responding to some of the criticisms uh, that that were I think echoing here right mm-hmm. um, they say quote. Of the arguments we have outlined, uh, like such as ours, um, this one is the most complex and difficult to evaluate, partly because philosophers continue to debate how to handle genuine uncertainty. (laughs) What matters is risk assessments as made according to the best available information, not the known objective existence of unidentifiable risk factors. Still, we believe it is possible to sketch a reasonable path forward. Competent adults who provide fully free and informed consent should be free to make enrollment decisions by employing whatever method of practically resolving uncertainty Uh, best expresses their values, provided that method is at least prima facie reasonable. In particular, when ethicists and regulators evaluate the risks of trials that seek to enroll children and decisionally incapacitated adults, ethicists and regulators are in the normative role of benevolent representatives or fiduciaries who act on behalf of potential participants. Several philosophers have argued that benevolent representatives should or could legitimately address genuine uncertainty simply by employing very conservative strategies. So, sure.
2: Uh, okay. like, <laughs> all right. I need, I need clarification on something. Yeah. Um, I can understand maybe there being consent. If you're saying in the study recruitment, um, we don't know anything like there's right. all, here's all the things we don't know. I can see people can say like, Oh, okay. There's a huge amount of uncertainty. I'm willing, you know, they're, variety of other factors to consider, obviously, like whether or not there's sort of, uh, you know, um, you know, sort of the economic enticement thing. We can deal with that later, but like, I can see if you're saying like, here's all the things we don't know, uh, you know, do you consent or not? Like based on the fact that I've told you that we don't know all of these things. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, but this isn't that right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not their argument.
1: Well, I mean, I think it's important to understand like where prima facie reasonable reasonable arguments are used, and that's um, that's actually basically in Latin. If you're unaware, it's a Latin expression which means like at first encounter. Um, I've experienced like learning about this in the context of uh, working as a real estate paralegal because it often re- like applies to what's called like positive contract law in regards to like leases. Right. So it's sort of the assumption that like, okay, on first suppression, you have a lease. Therefore, you are, you know, prima facie, like liable to pay the rest of the rent through the term of the lease. Right. It's sort of like an assumption. So it's not a it's not a um, a concept that I think should apply to making consent on participation in something like this. However, it has been applied since ethical violations in the like late 1890s as a way of sort of uh, indemnifying the researchers from, you know, making questionable experiments, which over the years, over the decades, has been gradually rolled back and regulated out of existence. So they're using like an argument which was used by the Prussian government in the 1890s to justify an experiment when <laughs> when someone named Albert Nesser or Neisser, he like intentionally infected patients with syphilis against their knowledge while they were in the hospital for other things. Right. And this has been used to justify these sort of challenge trials in the absence of consent. Like telling the
3: Tuskegee uh, experiment participants, quote unquote participants, that they'd simply had bad blood. Yeah, exactly. So Hmm.
1: like this guy, uh, Albert Nesser, like he in Germany in 1898, he was in like a hospital and he went and Applied the serum of syphilis patients to the wounds of sex workers who were in the hospital receiving other treatment for like domestic abuse or like, you know. I don't know, female hysteria, like what are people <laughs> going to the hospital for in the eighteen nineties, right? leeches, like, so, right. Right. So he is going around the hospital and dripping serum of syphilis patients into open wounds of, of sex workers in the hospital. And what happens is that he then expands his trial to orphans, which makes it like especially ridiculous that the company that the UK is actually contracted to run this human challenge trial, guess what it's called?
3: Oh my God! Is it named after him? Open orphan. No. Oh, open. Ew. is
1: yeah. that what they
2: mean by that?
1: I don't think so. <laughs> Probably
3: not. I super. Hope not. I hope Jesus. not. Hey, hey! It is the UK. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Who knows?
1: So basically, of course, this was like. What happened is some of the uh, participants were uh, obviously not inoculated by uh, Nisser's like, you know, bootstrapped experiment where he just like without consent, just like infected people with syphilis blood and they contracted syphilis. And um, he said, well, you know, it's actually because they were sex workers. And so this was like a huge scandal. And the Prussian government was like, OK, we have to set forward this sort of like Contract, Which is that like it's okay to do these experiments on people who already sort of have this preordained assumption of biological risk,
4: Jesus. which yeah. is
1: where this positivistic contract language has entered into medical ethics. So understanding the sort of history of where these arguments comes from is actually really important for understanding how they're being employed now. Right. Because right. this is a this is a way of indemnifying risky experiments performed on people who are either not giving consent or otherwise not able to give consent on the justification that their risk of contracting something was possibly equal outside of the study as well
3: and i think this is important because it's not that you know it's not even that these people are intentionally drawing on like the same arguments it just happens to be that like It's not, it's somehow not surprising, I guess, that like the, uh, the like faux bioethical justification, like the bioethical Mm -hmm. justification or whatever that they're giving, the in order to like, in order to make the logic work, you basically have to echo that same like thinking, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, which the, the problems of which with are like the reason that we have, um, what is it, the Helsinki Declaration or the reason, Declaration
1: of Helsinki, yeah.
3: Are the reason that we have, the Declaration of Helsinki.
1: Yeah, this Um, is sort of the the, one of the original like legal documents, which sought to like try and codify some sort of guidelines for informed consent. And, and, you know, unfortunately, like the cool thing about legal arguments is you have receipts, right? And when you look (laughs) at the legal arguments that are being made, um, you know, backing up the sort of assumptions about medical ethics that the people at One Day Sooner are, are forwarding, it backs It's backed up by some pretty heinous shit.
4: Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm.
1: Like it's um, a 1890, you know, Prussian government rule to quell a massive scandal over like non-consensual syphilis infections in sex workers is not exactly like a good starting point for a... um, you know, a vaccine trial in 2020. No, 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 (laughs) no, it's
0: not. If if it, if it, if it caused outrage in 19, if if it would have caused outrage in, in, in Prussia in like the year 1900, then you probably, you're probably starting from a, from a low, low bar. Oh, yeah.
1: (laughs) And of course, like, it's really important to note that uh, Germany is not alone in these experiments. And for everything that (laughs) Germany has done over the years like this, the United States has always done one better. But I also
2: think, I mean, to just as a broader analytical point, I think a lot of this should tell us something about the way that international frameworks like the Declaration of Helsinki work or don't. I mean, the FDA has not embraced any update to the Declaration since 1989, like it yeah. <laughs> it adheres only to the nineteen eighty-nine declaration. Um there are all kinds of controversies and implementation issues with, you know, uh getting research institutions to, you know, adhere to these these principles in normal times, right? Right. And I think that it I mean, it it makes sense as a project of like trying to instill these uh standards, but I think what we are sort of seeing now is that When these uh, when when other sort of um, demands uh, uh, come into the come into the picture of decision making or when decision making is removed from the venues that, you know, the Declaration of Helsinki might imagine uh, or imply that they're being made in, then it becomes really. Difficult to see how it's enforced, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Totally. Also, I will point out that, um,
3: you know, not that, not that this is, not that this has any specific, definitive meaning. I haven't analyzed this ar- their argument um, enough to say like one way or the other, like what is going on here exactly. But at least, uh, at least a couple of members of the um, one day sooner advisory board have, uh, let's say, written things in the late. I think it was like the late 80s and early 90s, posing some quibbles about that most recent um, (laughs) declaration of Helsinki uh, Mm. amendment. So just, you know,
1: interesting. Actually, if we want, maybe now's a good time to I put together a little timeline of the sort of history of these uh, human challenge trials. And maybe now is a good time to sort of walk through that. What do you guys think?
2: Put in Mm -hmm. some some march of time music here. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Um, I'd love to start us uh, in the 1760s with a man named John Hunter. Now, uh, he is quite famous for stealing the body of a giant uh, posthumously who wanted to be buried at sea and displaying his uh, skeleton in the like you know national... Um, natural history museum in wow. the UK. Okay. Um, he I mean, who, was, I think the surgeon general of the country. <laughs> right. Yeah. He, he apparently you stay bribed, away from
3: my body, Vince. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he apparently bribed, um, that skeleton already. <laughs> And bribed someone like five hundred pounds to steal the body, and and he personally filled the coffin with stones the night before because the giant had wanted to be buried at sea. But that actually is just trivia that does not relate to the conversation. That just gives you some idea of the man's character, shall we say? So um,
0: he's resourceful, is what you're trying to say.
1: Yes, <laughs> he's <determined>. tenacious. <laughs> he's tenacious. Yeah. So John Hunter was a Scottish doctor who, in the late 1760s. Um, infected test subjects and possibly himself with pus from individuals with venereal diseases because he had this idea that syphilis and gonorrhea were caused by the same pathogen. So he was going around and he was sort of doing these experiments where he would take lesions and like he would uh, lacerate them, collect the pus and then inject it into other people. And of course, what ended up happening is he gave a lot of people syphilis and gonorrhea (laughs) and... um, (laughs) obviously Uh, we we now know that they're not caused by the same disease and as comorbidities they are actually quite dangerous right well what this is a really good example of is just the fact that like there is great tragedy in running with assumptions and because a lot of these experiments are on really small um groups of test subjects right like you really actually can't necessarily get um, results that are worth running with so he contracted syphilis right and he said that that was proof that it was one path like pathogen so for 51 years the medical establishment ran with the idea <sighs> that syphilis and gonorrhea were caused by one pathogen oh, until boy. again 51 years later he was proven wrong by a french physician named philippe Ricord. so basically for 51 years again Do we want to necessarily be running with assumptions that could um, be based on such a small patient population that the the results are statistically insignificant, right? It would be like starting some sort of national program for hydroxychloroquine because there was one preprint study in Arizona that showed benefit for three patients.
4: Right. Right.
1: And I think it just is a good idea of like. You know, he was the mentor for someone named Edward Jenner, who is considered to be the father of the smallpox vaccine. And the people at One Day Sooner are very quick to invoke Jenner. Right. And and John Hunter is famous for giving Jenner this advice, which is try the experiment just try the experiment just inject yourself with syphilis pus because you have a hypothesis be right. a bold gentleman scientist and just inject yourself with the pus right <laughs> try the experiment and as already mentioned you know edward jenner tried the experiment and injected his gardener's son with um cowpox and then a month later injected him with smallpox to see if it worked based Again, on assumptions and anecdotal data, but the important thing to point out with Edward Jenner is that Edward Jenner was doing a challenge trial on humans much like we actually ethically do them now, but that's not being mentioned when he's being described by the One Day Sooner people. The One Day Sooner people say, oh, you know, see... This
3: has brought us breakthroughs before. Right, look at Edward Jenner.
1: Like, he took this risk and look at the amazing benefit to society we had as a result. Which again,
3: not to say that We're we're explicitly not saying that these people are being intentionally nefarious. It's just that, you know, it's at the very least lazy.
1: It's lazy because if you look at Edward Jenner's research and you look at, you know, two decades of research being done, particularly in what was then called the Ottoman Empire with and literal inoculation which is where you take you know biological matter from one infected person and inject them to the other this has been a practice that had been done mostly by rich people to protect their children after going on colonial you know excursions to the ottoman empire to like live in the east or whatever Mm -hmm. they were like wow it's so crazy like over here they've got this idea that like they can protect people from smallpox, which at the time was killing like a lot of European princes. Right? <laughs> I'm serious. Like yeah. it was a major problem among the wealthy in Gotta Europe. Got to
3: protect my princes.
1: Exactly. So you know, 25 years into this, after there are you know several other you know clinicians other than Jenner who have had success with using smallpox and cowpox to do inoculations, after 50 years of there being this old wives tale of cow and dairy maidens not getting it because they were exposed to cowpox. He then does his experiment and that is not being conveyed when they are invoking Edward Jenner and saying, try the experiment in the one day sooner, you know, whatever, because at the end of the day, if you were to acknowledge that part of Jenner's story, right. And not very
3: convenient for their argument where the try
1: the experiment advice comes from, it kind of, you know, falls like a house of cards. Right. Bottom line is, like, it's very dangerous to sort of, like, leave out portions of these stories and, like, run with yeah. um, the history. And, you know, as I said, like, we were talking about Albert nicer with Germany in 1898. Of course, the United States was also gleefully participating in these experiments a couple hundred years later. Um, most famous of which is Walter Reed, not the hospital, but the you know, <laughs> the, American the military self. physician yeah, right. who the hospital is named after, which is quite ironic, actually. But so in 1900, Walter Reed was down in Guatemala intentionally exposing people to mosquitoes infected with yellow fever. And I mean, basically what happened in the course of the trial is that multiple military personnel and several physicians died. Um, and Walter Reed got a hospital named after him and is a hero,
2: but that's actually, that's so, but that's very instructive, right? I mean, I think that that's, um, Mm -hmm. it's instructive in a, in a very dark foreboding way, I think about the way these things, uh, happen, which is that, um, yeah, history can be sort of, uh, muted, uh, in a lot of ways when, you know, people die, uh, and the, people who caused them to die intentionally uh, while saying what they were doing is ethical. As long as you are able to maintain that and have so high enough status, you will get a hospital named after you. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's right. just, I think, I mean, the issue for me is, you know, what's, pro- what propels these projects of, uh, of challenge trials or other sort of mechanisms of, of alleviating suffering, which ultimately make the calculus that to alleviate suffering we must impose suffering (laughs) typically on people who are rather vulnerable. It's, it's ends up being very hard to challenge uh, Mm -hmm. politically. It ends Mm -hmm. up being very hard to, you know, in the moment it is not the sort of thing that exposes itself to a lot of uh, political risk. And I think that Mm -hmm. that's, yeah, that that's, that's just a worrisome sort of thing to me. And I think it's looking back at these prior sort of examples, it feels a little like plus a change, like, um, You know, Mm -hmm. many things have changed. We have all of these new sort of standards, but yet as Artie, you know, has said, like the lot, the sort of logic and the sort of incentives uh, around uh, doing these sort of things haven't actually changed. Right. They remain the same, even Mm -hmm. though they're expressed in different ways. Right.
1: And I don't think we should be patting ourselves on the back that we're just marginally less disgusting and brutal than they were in the 1890s. Right. (laughs) Right. Like that's not, um, that's not an accomplishment that society should be proud of collectively. And I guess just the final example, which I think is important to understand sort of how these like principles of global medical ethics were, were developed, because we basically so we have the idea of like, you know, the uh, benefit to society needs to be established. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that running with assumptions based on results from small study groups can actually be quite harmful in practice than it is and this has not just happened in the 1760s but happened you know like with azt and hiv and there's you know like i could just like go on for four hours giving you examples of (laughs) when we've also done this like in more contemporary examples but it's also important to understand like world war ii right so in in world war ii you obviously have like what's going on with the Nazis. in 1943, The Lancet writes this like glowing praise of um, an experiment that was done uh, on a Ricketts vaccine in a concentration camp where 1,000 people died out of like 1,000 people that were put into the study. And what they said was that basically the benefit to society, which was measurable in that study, was the fact that the vaccine didn't work and that it was used as like a way to redirect. And so this sort of idea of the potential benefit for society really becomes codified in the debate over whether what the Nazis and the United States did were war crimes or not. And (laughs) basically what happens in the Nuremberg trial is that a lot of the Nazi doctors are saying, hey, listen, you know, yeah, there's this law from the 1890s from the Prussian government, but we're not Prussia anymore. And, uh, yeah, not, you know, like the, the third Reich does have rules against human experimentation on citizens, but the people in the camps were not citizens. We stripped them of their citizenship. Um, and also the United States is doing it too. And so what sort of comes from the Nuremberg trials is a realization that we need to create laws governing when it's ethical, when it's not ethical to experiment on humans. And what results is the 1947 Nuremberg Code, which is the first establishment of the requirement of a cost-benefit analysis to be done before one of these things can happen. And unfortunately, what we're seeing and what we've seen after that is this sort of over-projection of what the potential benefit of these studies could be, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the the Declaration of Helsinki happens in 1964, and that's really important because it, like, it pushes back on the idea that, that benefit— to society can just be accepted as a blanket rule. And it does set requirements that you can't like overinflate the benefit to society. However, in practice, what we're seeing constantly, especially in the context of like discussion of a, of a COVID vaccine human challenge trial is that the benefit to society is being way overblown.
2: Well, I mean, and that's, let let me, I want to reemphasize a point here, right? The way that we think about value uh, benefit risk, uh, do not mistake what is going on here when these uh, categories are used as some sort of explicitly scientific uh, judgment because valuation is a fundamentally social process. It begins yeah. and ends in society. Science is sometimes employed as a means of clarifying what those valuations are. But at the end of the day, it is only one um, thing. And, and, you know, society has to delegate uh, to experts uh, uh, around that. Right. So the idea that we are somehow sitting down and we are actually using uh, data to calculate these risks and benefits. Yeah, that might happen when you are going to like a research ethics committee uh, to get approval for the study protocol. But back of that the way that those things are, you know, first of all, uh, interpreted and, and the sort of social categories that are used to develop those measures. I mean, all of that is, is fundamentally social. And I think that we have to reconcile the fact that like, why are we in this place? Why are, why do we weight benefits and risks in the way that we do socially? I mean, like the, the public opinion studies around this are actually quite, I think, well done. I think you know, I would like to see some different wording of the questions, but there's been a, g- a sort of global um, survey of this, and there is, you know, across a variety of national contexts and a variety of demographic uh, kind of factors, there is, you know, apparently vast support for uh, challenge trials because of the way that uh, the benefits are sort of framed as like we will get to the end of this sooner, there will be fewer people that die, there will be fewer people that are out of a job, and so on, right? But the thing is, all of those benefit valuations that happen sociologically are happening in the context of us failing in every other conceivable way right. to manage this pandemic. So like I, again, I, you know, it's, I don't have a lot of preformed opinions on the, you know, particularities of, of challenge tries I think it's very clear now that we don't have like that the, the sign, the basic scientific and risk benefit criteria are not met. No. However, like to me, the broader thing is like, you cannot look at this or evaluate this in a vacuum that like you have to understand why these sorts of projects come to be and the own and, and why benefits and risks are weighed in the way that they are. And I think I can't understand it in any other way, except our just fundamental inability to use the power of the state to actually Meaningfully improve people's lives <laughs> yeah. in some the other way. So we have to God defer forbid. to this idea of the future. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well it's um, it's
0: as if it's as if that should uh, that should be on the uh, the ethics checklist. Is that you try in any way, shape, or form to. Uh, Improve people's lives with the power of the state prior to uh, engaging in a challenge trial. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Try that
3: first. Do uh, what what did Jenner say? Do the experiment.
4: Do
1: the experiment. Right? Do the
3: experiment. Do
1: the experiment. Make Nathan Tank as chairman of the FRED. You know. Yeah.
3: (laughs) Anyway, so, okay. Let's step out of history, though, and like go back to more present day because actually the like. You know, we we can talk all we want about, you know, the The eugenics
0: of the past, but we should probably talk about the eugenics of the
3: present. (laughs) Yeah, actually, I mean, uh, I couldn't have said it better myself. And, you know, we get it. You know, we I could see uh, people saying that we call um, everything eugenics or we call too many things eugenics. But to those people, I would simply say, have you tried overturning a single rock? (laughs) (laughs) Um, because i just want to point out and again you know i'm what i'm about to present to you guys Uh is not i want to be clear i'm not trying to slander or indict any of these people i am simply trying to point to things that are in the public record
1: you're contextualizing their
3: that research yeah that i just think people it, I think it's worth knowing that some of the people on the advisory board for One Day Sooner have published some of the following. Oh, boy. I spent some time uh, looking through... And, uh, you know, compiling a like a short list, essentially, of some of the people. It's a short list who are of the people who are on the advisory board, you know, looking into some of what they do. Um, a lot of them are bioethicists. Um, I'm going to focus mostly on those who are uh, either academics or sort of in the policy world. Um, although there are interesting figures like um, Joel Lawson, who it took a lot of digging to figure out what his deal is. But it seems like um, he is the same Joel Lawson, who is an executive at... Urban Outfitters and who it appears signed the (laughs) Great Barrington Declaration. What? What? um, Yeah. If um, uh, what's it called? If the Wayback Machine is any indication, Um, but, but so uh, I I just want to highlight a couple of these things and I want to read you the titles of a couple of things that some of these people have published. Okay. So one of these individuals uh, is named Arthur Kaplan. Mm -hmm. Um, again one of the people on the advisory board for uh one day sooner that is advocating for uh human challenge trials for a COVID-19 vaccine um as recently as 2015 in the journal of medical ethics he co-authored a paper called uh is risk stratification ever the same as profiling
4: oh boy uh
3: to which the conclusion was
4: well <laughs>
3: always we should continue to we should proceed with risk stratification, uh, but do so ethically. Wow. Um he also uh was on a paper called Why Autonomy Needs Help, um, <laughs> which in which uh, there is the quote, uh quote, if our brains were not so faulty, we would be making better decisions about healthcare. We would need uh what we need in healthcare is a return to a bit more medical paternalism. Um, <laughs> what and quote autonomy is too fragile and too often easily undermined by illness to permit the requisite fix what rather we ought to try to buffer autonomy with a bit more vocal input for the, from those who are expert and experienced he's talking about the doctor patient relationship um
0: wait and this cool. guy ran urban outfitters
3: no 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 this is a different oh, sorry
0: guy. <laughs> okay
3: um yeah so that's arthur kaplan different guy from joel lawson the the uh word The business guy um another person on this uh committee uh, is named abigail marsh Uh, she's the co-author of a paper called neural and cognitive characteristics of extraordinary altruists what um in which they looked at the amygdala activity of altruists
1: oh so legitimate phrenology
3: yeah um there's a quote in there (laughs) how
1: big does your frontal (laughs) lobe have to be to make you generous
0: (laughs) yeah what's the is the what's that stupid like lib um Uh, effective altruism i don't know
1: well apparently if your nose ridge is like six inches long then you are a conscious capitalist (laughs) (laughs)
0: um
3: continuing on this this person's not uh not necessarily like the same level of uh academic but uh one of the one of the um advisory board members is a resident scholar at the american enterprise institute named sally sattel who Recently has been writing a lot about how like she wrote a thing for the National Review about how uh, public health officials abandoned their credibility uh, when they said that uh, like going out and being a part of the George Floyd protests and the and like the uprising this summer was like a good thing and fine. Actually, Um, (laughs) she also in 2011 in Slate published an essay called You Want a Kidney? what fear mongering about uh, organ trafficking uh, possibly happening in China. Um,
1: Wow. I'm sorry. This is just wow. They found just like the coolest, best, most (laughs) uh, um, wonderful people. Yeah.
3: Other uh, other articles of hers from the early 2000s include much ado about meth Um, which is, uh, which begins with the line. Now I enjoy a good moral panic as much as the next person, but I think methamphetamine deserves its dreadful uh, reputation.
0: Um, (laughs) say what you will about her disgusting politics. She does know how to name an article, right? Um, (laughs) punchy 2002 in the New
3: York times. Uh, here's a, here's a op-ed headline. Uh, quote, I am a racially profiling doctor. Uh, (laughs)
1: you're not supposed to say that out loud. That's the quiet part.
3: Um, basically she's, she, and this is a whole thing. She wrote a whole bunch of articles around this same time, basically, uh, asserting that, like, I guess there was this whole thing about how the human genome project had, uh, made this like important declaration that was like yes in fact there are not massive biological differences between black people and white people uh we should not be you know racially profiling she's like hold on
1: actually she's like actually actually, wait wait so before you say that let me speak on that for a second so again whether
3: whether her views have changed this was you know she wrote several things on this in 2001 and 2002 interesting um i don't want to necessarily get get into um everyone but i i would like to point out my very favorite Daniel Wickler. Hmm. So Daniel Wickler, uh, I believe, is another bioethicist. And I would like to this one actually deserves a little bit of a, of a reading because this let me just put it this way. In looking through these people, I did not expect to find something this blatant. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but here we are. So in 1999, wow. in the Journal of Medical Ethics, Daniel Wickler published an article titled can we learn from eugenics?
1: Oh, I was not expecting that. <laughs> no,
3: that's not really the title, though. That's the title. Damn, oh they're what all just titling papers. What year? 1898.
2: Is that what you said?
3: I'm not. I'm not pulling your leg. I will fucking send this to you in right this? now. He's just
2: asking the question.
3: He's just <laughs> asking the question. Man. It's an Can we learn
2: from eugenics? It's a question. It's just like give eugenics exercise.
3: a
1: chance. You know what I mean? <laughs>
3: yeah um <clears throat> so again Don't
1: wholesale but, throw it out there un, were parts that were good
3: so unlike yeah. the other unlike the other uh stuff i think this one is actually worth reading a little bit from yes, uh, in 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 earnest because you'll see that basically i mean i would characterize this personally i would characterize this as like a little bit of a um how can we rehabilitate eugenics mm. um <laughs> okay so what uh, sorry can we learn from eugenics uh from the journal of medical ethics yes by we can daniel wickler <laughs> quote, Francis Galton, a cousin of Darwin, invented the term eugenics and oh launched God. a movement to improve the human race, or at least to halt its perceived decline through selective breeding. His ideas spread quickly, and by the 1920s, eugenics movements existed all over the world. Eugenics, a movement for social betterment, clothed in the mantle of modern science, claimed the allegiance of most genetic scientists, and drew supporters from the political right, left, and center. Uh. Unfortunately for that movement, and indeed for much of mankind, mankind, eugenics was embraced by Hitler and his Nazi followers, <laughs> tarnishing its name forever. After the fall of the Third Reich, eugenic ideas quickly lost their cachet, becoming virtually taboo in the United States and Europe where the term eugenic is now used primarily as an epithet. Yeah,
1: you know, it's just like the only problem with eugenics was Dashow and what, you know, the United States did is really not a big deal. The Chinese Exclusion Act, all of the um, sterilizations, <laughs> institutionalization, no big deal. Right, Nazi like the
3: history, the the uh, yeah, the history that that like brought forward into the rest of the 20th century. Uh, that definitely
1: didn't continue to the 70s, like we today. were saying earlier. Or today, <laughs> yeah,
3: that definitely doesn't exist in insurance you rates. Know, and
1: you see the <laughs> yeah. problem with eugenics is it has a negative connotation, and it really hasn't earned that negative connotation because it's simply. Cloaking an attempt to better society in science, right? Well, well, and and any no any, applying any, a know, rigorous genocide-
0: applying a rigorous scientific standard to the betterment of society, obviously. And well, any
1: you know any genocide that happened, there was informed consent.
0: So you guys can keep joking, but
3: I am going to read basically exactly what you're saying. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> uh, quote, we should not f- quote. We should not forget eugenics. Eugenics casts a shadow over the use of genetics in our own era, which promises so much for health, industry, agriculture and other fields. But that shadow is indistinct.
1: Just think if we just embrace eugenics again, we can end autism by avoiding <laughs> all of the babies that I, you know, take my special genetic test. He and was around
3: it. this time publishing articles in, like, he has a pop, popular science article that's about brain implantation. Oh so my actually, fucking yeah. God. Well, it's like <laughs> all <laughs>
1: these guys, it's you, you look, as you said already, you look under the rock and you find one sort of like paper in there always to end autism or Down syndrome at the end of the day.
3: Quote, we should avoid an unthinking rejection of every. Eugenic thought or value. The fact that eugenicists were in favor of a particular measure or goal is not in itself sufficient reason to oppose it. We need a good analysis of why eugenic aims were wrongheaded and why we might judge that some of the questions to which eugenicists proposed answers um, to which eugenicists proposed answers ought not to be ignored, uh, and indeed that they are now given too little attention in part because of their eugenic associations. <laughs>
1: um, so it's not the ideas; it's simply the label that's yeah. the issue. So, I mean, yeah
3: come on it concludes done justly the genetic well-being of the group is a as in society is a proper object of concern the question of moral importance is not whether this constitutes eugenics it is whether it can be done fairly and justly it wasn't the last time it was tried
1: <laughs> and it won't be when we try it with covid too allegedly. We, i'm
3: just saying what if we do it
0: again <laughs> You know anyway.
3: it didn't
1: work last time doesn't mean it's not gonna work again. We just have so- to be faster at killing them this time.
0: We swear we learned our lesson we we swear we're not gonna do the exact same thing. just like just just come on, just give us just give us one challenge trial. Well I swear we won't fuck it up. and if we fuck it up, we'll definitely will definitely take responsibility and none of us will get famous institutions named after us. Don't worry <laughs> about it. Don't worry about it. I mean, it. Here's the
1: thing is like in a lot of ways, eugenics also oversells the benefits Of this eugenics program like you know constantly everyone talks about in the eugenics movement of like oh you know we just need to simply like engineer for better you know better humans or a healthier population or whatever and and in a lot of ways these are all hypotheses which are working against the idea that structural racism has anything to do with like health outcomes you know there is sort of like a general understanding that if there are health disparities between groups and the only, you know, that like the likelihood is that structural racism, racism plays a role in that mm-hmm. health outcome. And like a lot of these people who argue for things that are vaguely eugenic um, adjacent are usually also pushing back against this hypothesis, right? Which is that like structural racism is like incredibly prevalent and predicates a lot of like what determined health outcomes can be. Right. Mm-hmm. A- and I think the fact that right now, like we are <laughs> how many months into this pandemic, not a single one of the human challenge trial proposals that I've read so far, and I have read a lot of them, not a single one has addressed having to account for the issue of structural racism.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, not one. I
3: mean, I will say that AI scholar, uh, Sally, uh, Sattel- who i was mentioning before does have an article from uh the weekly standard uh called don't despair over disparities that is actually about explicitly not uh
0: considering that look look at at the (sighs) at the end of the day this is all just about the deficit i
1: mean not to be that person but at the end of the day this all is about health finance right it really mm-hmm. is because yeah. so much of this right so much of the the ethical question that we're actually talking about right to really get to the like bottom line core of the issue right is that as it stands currently it's quite difficult to imagine a way to design a study that is not in some way coercive because of the circumstances specifically of health finance because Mm -hmm. let's say let's say you're in this groundbreaking uk human challenge trial right
4: Mm -hmm.
1: like does that mean that you then get access to the mab before it becomes available through emergency use right does that mean that you're getting access to remdesivir Right. These are not widely available therapeutics. Well, and even mm-hmm. beyond
3: access, it's like, I mean, one of the things that the in the Tuskegee experiment, like um, one of the incentives, actually, you know, speaking of like mm-hmm. uh, even non-monetary incentives or whatever that people... Uh, that leads people to give informed consent or not that there was informed consent in the Tuskegee <laughs> experiment, but, <laughs> no, you know, but that, that, like, you know, can leverage people into a study is like in the Tus- Tuskegee experiment. One of the reasons why like people were there in the first place and stayed in the trial was they were told like they were going to get free government health care. Like, mm-hmm. They were going to get health care provided by the government. And it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's not funny. That they, did, they didn't. <laughs>
1: There are two two paragraphs within the Declaration of Helsinki, which specifically account for this needing to be designed for in studies. I think it's paragraphs 20 and 34, which specifically say, like, if there is not an appropriate health finance system to support people, whether they're in the trial or not, it can't be ethical. Right. And we Hmm. ultimately just don't have that right now.
3: So, yeah, we can't do that in the United States, at least. Nope, not in the United (laughs) States. I mean, Um, yeah,
1: you could maybe make the argument in the UK, but not really because of the way that therapeutics are right now. And by January, I can't imagine that mAbs are going to be available at every corner. Yep. You know, the NHS is not going to have such a significant availability of these drugs that it's going to make it ethical to, you know, run forward with a, a trial strategy like this, especially, especially when most importantly, there is a not insignificant possibility of the results being not helpful. And Mm -hmm. like in the, you know, situation that we discussed, like, you know, with our good friend John Hunter, like sometimes having small sample sizes can result in running with assumptions that leads to, you know, delays that would have otherwise not been an issue if you had just gone for the Chad aesthetic of a Actual phase three, 30,000 strong, double-blind study. Mm
2: -hmm. Just saying. At the end of the day, (laughs) these things rise or fall, or they will rise or fall on the ability of the studies to recruit participants. And I think one thing that we're going to want to be watching is these uh, sort of volunteer organizing committees that are being set up in different countries by one day sooner. Um, And... You know, there's a whole sort of um, implementation apparatus that that, uh, you know, the the design of the studies alone uh, is sort of can't fully capture. But I think in the end, uh, yeah, there's there's going to be a lot to watch with uh, with what happens in the next few months on this. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And And
3: they have they have recruited a lot of people, but I would hope that actually a lot of that enthusiasm is probably just like the thousands of people or whatever who signed up, I would hope that actually a lot of that reflects more actually, I mean, people who would even just be willing to be part of a trial in the right. like, full stop. Right. I mean, yeah, no,
1: exactly. You know, I mean, I think that's an just important. so
3: happens that they have a website you can put your email on. or something.
1: Like that. I think that's <laughs> an important thing to say. Cause like in a lot of ways there is the coercive factor of just feeling powerless. Right. And this is a way to, you know, try and sell to people the idea that you can have some sort of power in participating towards like finding a fix. Right. Right. But that does ultimately that does not need to be done. And I think I'm fairly confident saying as it stands right now, that should not be done through a first of its kind human challenge trial. Yeah. We don't just because we've done it this way, you know, and it's led us with the marginal social benefit of like, for example, learning that a vaccine is not effective. Right.
4: <laughs> right. Um, yep.
1: I just don't think that there is a compelling and rational ethical argument to become a challenge trial participant when like you could instead become a participant in a actual large double blind phase three vaccine trial which will probably yield better results than you would get from being a participant in one of these smaller experimental, you know, flashy challenge trials.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So
1: with that, I think we should call it a day. Thank cool. you yep. for listening. Please become a patron patreoncom pod you get a discount on merch, access to all of our bonus episodes including the entire back catalog which as we said, fantastic interview from monday with abby and justin on the great barrington declaration which dovetails very well with this so
3: mm-hmm. yeah
1: highly Plenty to
3: recommend in there mm-hmm. frankly yeah yeah
1: well we'll catch you next time medicare for all now solidarity forever stay alive another week Bye. bye. Oh, yeah. right, bye.
4: people are strange when you're a stranger faces look ugly when you're alone Women seem wicked When you're unwanted Streets are uneven When you're done. When you're strange Faces come